Hello everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Dudes of Kung Fu. On this episode, we are honored to be joined by my friend, teacher, and mentor, Steve Golden. As you'll hear on the podcast, Steve trained with uh, men like Ed Parker and Bruce Lee in the L.A. Chinatown School. So sit back and uh, ready, get ready to be schooled. And every day, I practice martial arts. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 7 of... Dudes of Kung Fu. Outstanding. How are you, Alex? I'm doing really well. I uh, got here a little bit later than uh, I normally do. Uh, for those people who live here in New York, they know that the subway has been an absolute mess for the last couple of days. So I was racing back here to do tonight's podcast because we have an awesome special guest tonight. So I'm very excited about that. Well, I don't know why you would consider me a special guest, dude. I'm here every freaking week. <laughs> But you have no idea this is the highlight of my week, Sean. You know, the entire week I spend grinding, trying to teach people martial arts. And and all I have to look forward to in the bleak existence that is my life is an hour with you on Fridays to discuss anything that we, you know, have on the docket. So this is all I look forward to. I get that and I sympathize. But Alex is right. We do have an awesome special guest tonight. This is, um, I've been begging my uh, friend and teacher... Steve Golden to come on this podcast for quite some time. Matter of fact, this is what season seven, episode seven, season three, episode seven. <laughs> season I'm, seven, you get that wrong every single. Ah, time. shut the fuck up. <laughs> and I've been begging Steve for since we started, and he's finally uh, relented and said uh, he'll come on. So for those of you that don't know, Steve Golden trained with uh, a couple of guys in the martial arts. You probably heard of them, Ed Parker. And Bruce Lee, amongst others. And, um, hey, Steve, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Who's this awful guest that you've got? <laughs> I'm sorry, Steve. That, that's my Brooklyn accent. I don't mean awful. I meant awesome. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, super excited uh, uh, to have you on the podcast Um for um, for those who you know have followed our podcast for a while, uh, they know uh, Sean has has learned from Steve for for a, uh, quite a while. He's known Steve for a bit. I had the awesome opportunity to to meet Steve on a couple occasions. Uh, a couple years ago, uh, I was at my school teaching a seminar, and uh, it was absolutely fantastic. And spent some time with him, hear some stories. So super super excited to uh, have him on this podcast. Yeah, so I met Steve, um, I'm going to say, what, 1991, Steve? When did we? No, no, I think it was probably, what, 96, 97? 96, 97? Somewhere around that. Okay. So, yeah, Steve's details. (laughs) Yeah, well. Episode 7, 91, 96, all the same. I've been punched in the head a lot, so you have to cut me some slack. Hey, it was an accident. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you did punch me in the face within the first 20 minutes of meeting me, so... Yeah, I heard there's this great story. Uh, Sean, you, want, you mind telling the audience the story? Well, well, uh, well, I'll start it and let Steve finish it. I, um, like a putz, thought I knew wing, uh, thought I knew Chisau. And um, I built myself up saying, like, to Steve on the phone, oh, I'm, I'm really good at Chisau. I'm really good at Chisau. <laughs> and, you know, like, you know... I, as, as anybody else should do, you know. So right. literally within within five minutes of getting in my house, Steve says to me, "Go on, well, let's get this over with. Let's go out onto your back deck and roll a little bit." 
And we rolled, and I did what I did best. And when I got up off the floor, I had a little bit of a bloody lip, and I went in the house, and my wife looked at me, and with that sweet way that only a wife can do, said, so how's it going? <laughs> as, I'm, as I'm blotting the blood from my lip, and I says, how's it look like it's going? She goes, well, it looks like the old man just kicked your ass. She's like, <laughs> Steve, did that sound about right? Yeah, it was something like that. You, The big mistake you made was telling me that you do cheese out with a lot of people. And, you know, you can hold your own. You know, they get you, you get them. But, you know, you're willing to go pretty hard. And I had told you, don't try to do anything to impress me. Right. And you said, I won't try to impress you. I'll go just as hard with you as I do with everybody. <laughs> this guy outweighs me. <laughs> he says he's pretty good. I don't know anything about him. I don't know what he's going to do. We'd never met before. I sat there and I thought, let's just do it. And we went out and we touched hands and you tried to do some really nifty thing. And I remember you almost going over the railing on your deck. Yep. Oh my God, I might have killed him. <laughs> I, I never forget because that night after I dropped you off at the airport, um, I had promised Jerry Petit that I would call him and um, and tell him how the first night went. And I told him that uh, you split open my lip and cheese sal. And he goes, oh, I know Steve a long time. And for Steve to split your lip open, you got to either be a, an asshole or a really big guy. He goes, I've been talking to you a while. I don't think you're an asshole. So you're a big guy, Sean. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, I'm a pretty big guy. He goes, oh, well, then Steve just had to put you in your place and let you know what was up. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's some important life advice there. You know, generally when you're talking with somebody who may have trained with Bruce Lee, probably not a good idea to go, you know what, I'm pretty good at Chisa. This <laughs> <laughs> is like, just to make sure that things go well on the first meeting, but it might you know, be something you might not want to do. Uh, Sean, you mentioned Jerry Petit there for a moment. Did you want to maybe tell the audience you might not know who that is, his story a little bit, and then um, also, Steve, if you want to maybe talk about um, uh, Jerry and how you knew him, uh, So, because some of our audience may not know right. who these people are. So I mentioned Jerry Petit. Jerry Petit was a uh, classmate of Steve Golden's in Bruce Lee's L.A. Chinatown School. And, Steve, he was a pretty good friend of yours, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were friends and probably in, until the end, until he passed away. But I met him in Ed Parker's school. Oh, okay. So, so, you, he, so he, he, was, trained. Yeah, he was training in Kenpo first. So yeah. you, 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 Jerry, um, was Pete and Jacobs? Pete Jacobs, Danny Lee. Oh, wow. Okay. We, we were all in Ed Parker's school together. Now, when you were in Ed Parker's school, well, let's, let's, let's take a couple of steps back. How'd you get involved in the martial arts in the first place? Well, you know, I've tried to figure out why. I have no idea why. I can say how. Okay, that works. But this this was in the mid-50s, and I was really interested in And we lived um, about 15 or 20 miles from Los Angeles. And there was nothing around. So I used to read books on it, try to find anything I could. I had a friend uh, that I was going to school with who had taken... Ten, list, 10 lessons in judo, self-defense lessons. So I convinced him to show me some throws, you know, throw me. And he right. said, well, you might get hurt. And I said, I don't care, just do it. 
<laughs> so he did this this rear hip throw, got in back of me, kind of broke my balance, and I thought, ah, I'm going to fall over. And all of a sudden, the world turned upside down. <laughs> I was flying over, fell into the sawdust pile, got up, and I said, do it again. <laughs> so we, we used to play. But I tried to find things, and um, I, I couldn't drive at that time. So I found out that there was a place in Hollywood that was giving one free lesson. Convinced my parents to drive all the way out to Hollywood, take me in there, and I got one free lesson from my first real, honest-to-goodness instructor. Oh, wow. Bruce Tegnier. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> that doesn't suck. Great. He was great. Super personality. Got people in there. In one lesson, one hour lesson, I learned how to fall. I learned how to throw. I learned how to block anything you could throw at me. I learned how to get out of any kind of grab. I learned everything. Right, wow. right, right. That's wonderful. so cool. For, for people that don't know, Bruce Tegner, uh, for years, had the uh, corner of the market for martial arts books. If you were into martial arts, in the, especially in the early 70s, man, you, you owned his books. I, I, in fact, I think I still have a couple of his books upstairs. And... Uh, he was, yeah, by, he was, by the 1980s, you didn't really find Bruce Tegner's books too often. But I used to go to Germany a lot in the 80s, and all of Bruce Tegner's books had made their way over to Germany, translated into German. And I remember I'd go to the bookstores in Germany and see, like, every single martial art that was out at the time, savat, karate, judo, everything. Bruce <laughs> Tegner wrote a book on it. Right. And I was like, wow, this guy must be amazing because he knows everything, right? <laughs> but I wasn't but the thing him. is... He would. He wrote one book at first on on, on karate, mm-hmm. and then when something else became kind of trendy, another book would come out on that. Wow! Right. And if if it came out, all of a sudden it was it was uh, aikido. All of a sudden there'd be an aikido book come out. So wow. he kept coming out with all of these. That's awesome. You, personally, personally, he was a great guy. And he and he had like a legit martial arts school in in Hollywood. You said it, and it was advertised. What is a judo school, a karate school? What was he? Teaching? I don't remember. Oh, wow. I know it was it was one free lesson, and wow. I don't even remember how I found out about it. You know, I I try getting on the internet and looking things up, but since there was no such thing back then, <laughs> <laughs> it's not like nowadays, right? No, you couldn't so even they, find things on the white pages. Wow, and it. So I, I wanted I wanted to learn judo. Was interested in self defense, and then uh, let's see. I think it was. I can't remember which book came out, but it said that jujitsu was the fighting part, and I thought, okay, that's what I want. I, you know, forget judo. So that was out. So I wanted jujitsu, and then Jimmy Lee's book, James Wiley wrote yep. a book, and little little white uh, paperback hand drawings and everything and I grabbed that and it said that this was this is, he said karate on it back then who ever heard of kung fu you know we didn't know what that was but it was karate and I opened it up and it said that some people say that a karate man can even beat a jiu-jitsu man and I thought that's what I want <laughs> so anyway it didn't matter what I wanted I couldn't do any of it I couldn't get to anything then in high school Ed Parker comes in and gives a demonstration I threw wow. all my other books away. Wow. <laughs> Holy cow. So I got my parents. I talked them into to letting me go for this three-month 
session. It was three three months of lessons, and um, they they were a little upset because they see people breaking their their hands and everything, breaking boards, breaking bricks. And I used to do a lot of magic, you know, with my hand, and they didn't want to mess that up. So I went and talked to Ed Parker, and he said, "Well, bring your parents in." So my parents came in there. He never let me forget this, by the way. <laughs> he says, I remember you bringing your parents in and quizzing me. So first of all, he pulls out a ukulele and starts playing a ukulele. Nice. So they were saying, oh, okay, well, you know, he's got dexterity. And then I had a promise that if I did this, I would not be breaking boards and bricks. Absolutely promise and swear I would not be doing that. So I promised and I didn't. I didn't break anything for weeks. <laughs> we, we used to go in back of the school, and there were these board remnants. You know, people would be breaking out there, and there were half boards lying around. So we'd be breaking those in the Makawara, and, you know, smashing them. All the things I promised I wouldn't do. That's awesome. <laughs> but, so I didn't realize that. You trained with you trained with Parker before the service. And for some reason in my head, yeah, I had yeah. that. That was afterwards for some reason. No, no I, I was there almost a year, I think a little over nine months or so with Ed Parker. And what was Ed Parker like, like as a person, as an instructor? Because I've, I've only read about him uh, oh. you know, in articles. I know nothing about him personally. Super, super guy. Really, really nice. Uh, scary when he wanted to be. Sure. But um, Was he very just, formal? Just as nice as to be. Was he very what? Formal, like in his, like the class setting. Was it very formal? Was it relaxed? Was it more like a boxing gym? Or was it more like a very hard traditional school? Off. Okay, we'd start off. We'd go through a salute. Everybody line up. You go through this big salute thing. And then you'd just uh, learn these fighting techniques. And when Ed was teaching, we always called him Ed. We did not see food. Not, I mean, nothing. It was just Ed all the time. People talked to me about... Uh, why aren't I formal? Why don't Why don't I go with tradition? They said, you know, because I, I tell people call me Steve, right. and they said, you know, you should be traditional. You know, you've got all this school and everything. And I said, look, when I studied with Ed, we called him Ed. That's the way it was. When we studied with Bruce, we called him Bruce. So to be traditional, you can call me Bruce. <laughs> 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 but but the thing is that was the tradition you just we just we were more like friends than student and instructor and one of the reasons that I like I don't like people to call me with any kind of a title is because I think it removes me from their level mm. I like to right. be on the same level as everybody else I don't, I don't want people worried about uh, calling me something or being afraid to ask questions so I, I just try to even things out that way. It, besides, I'm uncomfortable with titles. Right. But no, Ed, Ed Parker was a great guy. So I studied with him for about nine months. And then I went in the Marine Corps. And I went in to get to Okinawa. I wanted oh. to go to where karate originated. Wow. But do you, so, did you actually end up going to Okinawa? Or did you go uh, send you somewhere else? Okay. When they started assigning us in boot camp, uh, I said, okay, you know, I want to go there. I was... Uh, trying to get into electronics. I got the second highest score on the electronics test in my platoon. Wow. The guy that got the first highest score, they made a cook. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
And remember, I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles. They say you're, sta- you're going to be stationed at 29 Palms in field artillery. Oh. You know, 29 Palms out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. Sure. The guy next to me that said, you're going to Adak, Alaska. And I thought, 29 Palms. Yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds good. <laughs> that <was> good. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I hate the cold. Anyway, So anyway, I go there, and I look around on the base trying to find out if anybody's doing any martial arts. And they said, yeah, there's some karate people that work out up in the warehouse. So I went and started playing around with them. And most of them learned in either Japan or Okinawa. So, so you, got, you got it through, through them a little bit. Well, they were a little concerned about some of the stuff I was doing. Oh, because they said, no, that stuff is way too advanced. You shouldn't be doing that unless you're a black belt. Wow. And that was, you know, just from sitting with Ed for a while. So then <laughs> right. finally, finally, we got shipped to Okinawa. Started taking lessons, um, Gojiru, for about two months, maybe two and a half months. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got pulled off on work detail all the time, so we couldn't continue. Did that for a while. Went to another school when I got a chance. Um, I think it was Ishinru at that time. I don't know, a month or so, got pulled off again, couldn't continue. So what I did is I ended up working with all the guys that were studying all, all the other schools. I'd spar right. with people from all the schools, and, and I think I did better doing that than actually being stuck in one school. Right. Interesting. So that was, um, that was about 13 months over there. So when you were in Okinawa, did you pick up on any of the uh, the Okinawan weaponry, like the nunchuck or? Yeah, nunchaku, size, bow. Wow. Yeah, everything. You grab everything you can. That must have been very Swords, exciting back then. Because you didn't have, like, the saturation we have nowadays with internet and TV and having seen movies and for years and years. That was, like, all new and fresh back then. Must have been incredible. Yeah, we'd never seen anything like that. And, uh, you know, they'd have inspections in the barracks for people that might have weapons. Right. (laughs) And they'd open my locker, and here's all these weapons hanging there. And they just look at it and look at me and say, okay. (laughs) (laughs) You know, they they knew I worked out all the time and did all of that, and it was fine with them. So so I was one of the few people that was allowed to have all these weapons. When you came home from Okinawa, when you left the Marine Corps, so you went back to Ed Parker School? Yeah. Oh, one, one thing. Yeah. When I was working out in one of the, the big gyms over there with a friend of mine, you know, doing all this bam, 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 dropping on the ground, jumping on, you know, all this, all this Kimpo stuff. There was a 10th degree red belt on the other side of the gym teaching a few people. And he was staring at me and he called me over. How long you, you know, come out? And I said, uh, I think it was nine more months. And he says, you study with me. You get second degree black belt. Wow. And I thought, oh, nice. And I ran away. Because <laughs> <laughs> I could see at that time, Ed Parker was the third degree. I could see coming home and saying, hey, Ed, now I'm a second degree. Yes. And then right. and, well. <laughs> and Ed wouldn't have been real friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. I also was, I it, it, oh, go ahead. It would have been a waste of my time studying with them because they didn't, sure. they weren't doing what I wanted to do. Right, right, right. I remember you told me a story that um, I guess towards the end of your time in the Marines, you went to Hong Kong for a short time and you ended up taking a Kung Fu lesson while you were out there. Uh, is, is that right in the timeline there? 
kind of. Uh, it was while I was in Okinawa. I took mm. uh, a four-day leave and went on a training flight and flew into Hong Kong. So I was there for four days. Wow. And you couldn't find you couldn't find any martial arts there. Sure. It asked about Kung Fu. No one knew anything about it. Chinese boxing. No one knew anything about it. I talked. I asked at the hotel. I asked the police. Nothing. But a guy on a ship had given me an address. So I, I jumped in a cab, handed him the address, and we drove over to I think it was a Wan Chai district. I'm not yeah. Positive. Yeah. And uh, there's this big bird painting in the window. And he says, here? And I said, that's the right address? I don't know. So I got out, looked in this room, a bunch of old men sitting on these benches, kids running around. And I thought, this is nuts. And I walk in and I look, and all of a sudden there's these weapons all over this wall. And I think, okay, <laughs> now we've got it. <laughs> they, didn't they didn't understand any English. Right. Sure. And obviously I don't understand Cantonese. So they came up and tried to ask me, what are you doing in here? And I pointed <laughs> to all those weapons and they said, <laughs> well, they spent the rest of the day demonstrating all these weapons for me, weapon forms. Um, my favorite was the, the dub swords against the spear, right. the two man sets. That's and awesome. They asked me out to dinner at night. We went to this, uh, um, little restaurant back alley somewhere. There were about 15 of us. Ordered food and bottles of rice wine. And oh, I can't believe how much food there was. Some of it was frightening. I had no idea what it was. <laughs> sure. I, I heard later that some of it was monkey meat, which I don't recommend. <laughs> Not good. And then at the end of that, they said that I'm the honored guest. One guy spoke enough English to do this that I get to pay for it. <laughs> uh, there's a little panic there because I, I looked at the bill and, and this was in 1961. And it was, I think, $42 or something like that. And I, I thought, if I, I can do this, I can pay for that, but then I can't pay for the room and I'm going to get arrested and I'm going to go to jail and I'm going to get court-martialed and this is horrible. And I was trying to talk my way out of it. And then I realized that that's Hong Kong dollars. That's about four bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Gladly paid for it. They invited me back the next day and they said they would teach me. Oh, nice. So the next day they asked what I wanted to learn. And I asked for a spear because I figured that's something that I could do. You know, I could, I could make a spear or a pole or something. Sure. So we spent about 12 hours working on a spear set from the white crane system. Wow. Wow, that's cool. That's really cool. I can imagine, like, you know, most Marines, when they go on leave, want to do something else for a couple of days. Yeah, Wan, but, Wan, Wan, and the funny thing is Wan Chai is actually known. Uh, it's kind of a bit of a red light district in Hong Kong. <laughs> <laughs> so, I can imagine I, the only soldier in Wan Chai not doing that. <laughs> well, Wan Chai was off limits. Sure. We, we sure. weren't supposed to be there. But first of all, I didn't know it was Wan Chai at the time, and it wouldn't have made any difference. Right. Sure. One child but when I was working on the spear set, people would walk by and they were laughing at me. And, you know, not that I cared, but the, the person that could speak a little English explained that they were laughing because they'd never seen someone who wasn't Chinese doing that. Right, wow. sure. Sure, especially at that time. What year, what year would that have been, by the way? 61. 61, wow. 
Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, at that time in Hong Kong, there was little to no Westerners doing any kind of Chinese martial arts. You're probably definitely a pioneer of that as well. I remember when you told me this story, uh, I wanted to figure out if I could um, find what school that was that you went to because you said it was White Crane. And I actually mm-hmm. found out that uh, that was the school of Lok Chifu, who's very famous White Crane master in Hong Kong. He's also one of the founders of the Hong Kong Martial Arts Association. And that school is still there to this day. As a matter of fact, Lok Chifu owned the entire building. And although he passed away quite a long time ago, his students and his family still run it. And the rest of the building is rented for normal businesses. But apparently, the White Crane Kung Fu School is still in that building in, in Wan Chai to this day. So next time I go uh, next time I go there, I want to stop by and, and, and take a look. But that school is still there, believe it or not. Wow. Well, yeah. probably some of the people I, I met there are still there, too. But I, I didn't get any names, didn't know, have any idea who was who. Yeah, I'll have to take that old photo of you and then... <laughs> That's the oldest looking person in there. Do you remember this guy? You did get that picture then. Yeah. I did, I did, okay, I did. Okay, this guy later learned from Bruce Lee after you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's a good thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember I also then asked you um, if you had ever told Bruce about that experience, and you did, and what he said uh, – Actually, and I asked you, what, what did he say when you said that uh, you had learned there? And his response was exactly what I thought he would say. Do you remember what that was he told me? Well, I know what he said. I don't remember what I told you he said. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's why I, I phrased the question exactly like that. <laughs> what, he, what he told me, because I, t- I told him that I learned a spear over there, and he says, well, Wing Chun uses a spear also, which I had never heard before. Oh, right. So I, said, uh... I said, well... Show me, show me what, show me how they use it. And he said, "Well, I don't have a spear." So the next time he called me to come and pick him up and drive him somewhere, uh, went up to his room. We talked for a while. We went down, got in the. He was going to get in the car, but I pulled a spear out of the back seat and said, "Here's a spear." <laughs> show me. <laughs> he that's had a interesting. Few moves with it, and then we had to get going. So that that was about it. That's incredible. That's incredible. And I remember you also mentioned something about uh, that he said he was actually surprised that they had even taught you at all, um, which I thought, oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that well, that's the part that was would have been my response because even to this day, some very traditional Kung Fu schools, they're, they're still a little awkward when Westerners come by, and I can't even imagine how that must have been like in 1961. So, yeah, I thought that, that was also quite interesting that they even took you in so openly and just showed you a spear form and on your second day. is pretty incredible. Oh, yeah, I, I was thrilled. But I don't, for one thing, I don't think I was any threat. They knew I was leaving right after that. Sure, sure. And uh, I don't know, we were real friendly. That's and they amazing. were they were showing me some uh, stuff with the hands, you know, just uh, different hands. And they said, what do you do? And they threw a punch at me, and I blocked it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they threw another punch, and I let it go in. And I said, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I think they like that. Right. Sure. I could have stopped that one too, but then I probably would have gotten hurt. Yeah. <laughs> show you something. If you, you let them go in a little bit, then you know they're going to actually show you something, which is which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you came back to the states, and then how did you continue with martial arts after well, that? Continue with Ed Parker. Mm-hmm. Went back there, and that's that's where I met Bruce. Well, how Bruce how Bruce used to come into him? How how many years did you spend with Ed Parker? I should say, how long did you spend with Ed Parker after you came back? 
Well, it was seven years altogether. Seven years altogether. Do you remember? Do you uh, what rank did you reach in Parker Kempo? Uh, well, under Ed, first degree, and okay. under one of his one of his other students, another friend of mine who I was teaching at his school. I think it was second degree. Nice. That's that's pretty freaking cool. That is pretty cool. Yeah, that's, that's original. That that is like martial arts royalty for the U.S. There, I mean, Ed Parker is yeah. one of the pioneers, and, and as many people know, he was also uh, uh, Elvis Presley's teacher too. Most famous. Did you ever have a chance? Were you around during that time when he was learning from Elvis, or did you uh, ever hear any Elvis stories through Ed Parker or anything like that? That's kind of a sore point. <laughs> well, Steve, don't get me wrong. We all think you're a hunk of hunk of burning love, also. You know, it's, it's not that. It's not what. It's not what you think. Okay. Uh, you know, people talk about um, what happened with me going to, to Bruce, and was Ed upset and angry and everything. But here's the way it really was. When, when I was up in Oregon, Ed Parker used to come up to Oregon to, to Eugene, Oregon, bodyguarding for Elvis Presley. I used to go over and see Ed even then. So this was this was long after Bruce was gone, and that happened. So I'd go and see him in his hotel room, and we were sitting and talking, and he says, you know, Elvis is right next door. Do you want to meet him? And I said, no, I came to see you, not Elvis. <laughs> I got home, and I said, I told that. You didn't meet him? <laughs> I was interested in meeting Elvis. That's awesome. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> that is incredible. So you're saying that when you were in Parker's Parker School, that that's where you met Bruce Lee? Yeah, Bruce used to come in to talk to Ed in Pasadena. You know, so they were, about, they were friendly. You know, the Hollywood stuff that was going on and, and stuff like that. So we'd always grab hold of liter not literally grab hold of excuse me. We would kind of grab hold of him and say, show us stuff, you know, do this, do that. Sure. So, and, and, and would, what would he do like in the school? Would he just like, just just futz around? What, did he? Did he? Do you think he was? I mean, it's many years later. Do you think he was sitting there? Did I put the seed in his head? Like, hey, maybe I should open a school. A lot of these guys would come join. Or was he? Do you think he was there trying to impress students? Or do you think he was there just saying, you know, well, let me show these guys what I do? No, he was there to see Ed. I mean, you know, we. I was there. Yeah. He was always anxious to show things when he was doing that. And how, did, and, and how did you, or how did you first decide then to start learning with Bruce Lee? Um, he convinced me. <laughs> That's a great story. You definitely got to tell that. Okay. Okay. So we, he asked me and a friend of mine, Louis Solis, to help him do a demonstration in Chinatown at, at some, I don't know whether it was a New Year's or some festival. But he was going to do a demo, and he'd hurt his back, so he, he wasn't able to do it. He asked us to do it. And I, and I said, we, you know, we know Kenpo. We don't know what you're doing. And he said, do your Kenpo. It's, it looks more impressive than what I do. And we said, <laughs> okay. So we're up on the stage, and he was announcing to everybody what we were doing, and everybody loved it. Afterwards, he said, okay, the owners of this Chinese restaurant, uh, Mandarin Chinese restaurant, have invited us out you want to go? And I said, sure, I, I wanted to. Louis couldn't make it. So we went there, and the restaurant was closed other than just for all of us. So there were a bunch of people around this one table. Uh, Danny Asanta was there. And uh, they didn't want to talk to him at first because they thought he was Japanese. And, you know, the the Mandarin had a little, uh, I guess, 
unpleasantness <laughs> with <laughs> Japan during the war. Then they found out he's Filipino and everything was fine. So anyway, during a break, Bruce and I went out into this um, this other room. There was a piano there, and I guess it was a bar. And we're starting to do Chi Sao. And when I say do Chi Sao, he said, you know, you can touch. So I'm touching. And he says, just try to hit me, but don't, you know, don't pull away. Just touching. And I tried all kinds of things and, you know, even weird things coming up underneath. And, and I remember saying, you can't beat a man in his own game. And he said, that's not my game. <laughs> I said, well, what is? And he said, get out there and try to stop me. So I got out in my best Kenpo stance. And I said, okay. And he was about, I don't know, five or six feet away. And he came in at me. And I mean, he came in and I, it was, it was easy to block. I hate to say that. He came in as fast as he could. It was easy to block. It was boom, but there was another thing coming. And it was easy to stop that. But then my arms were crossed. I was bent over the piano with the fingers in my eyes. And he said, that's my game. And I thought, oh, crap. <laughs> that's a good game. Yeah, right. But the thing is, that wasn't because he was better than I am. He was, there was no doubt. That was because he knew things I didn't know, which meant that I could learn things. Right. And that's when I decided I've got to learn from this guy. Yeah. But so, uh, I did exactly what I would have done. And I credit myself for having lasted two seconds for the fact that I was already a black belt in tempo. Right. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine if you weren't? Oh, yeah. I mean, I never would have lasted two seconds. So you, you, were, you were there when the day that Bruce Lee opened up the school. Yeah. Yeah. He invited us and I was there and uh, Jerry was there. Pete, Danny Lee, yeah, a whole bunch of us. I think Bob Rimmer was there too. That's that's. Uh, and there were a lot of people that, that didn't stay. I couldn't figure out why. I mean, why now, don't you want us to learn this? Is that when that famous picture was taken that, that first day, or was that a little bit afterwards? That there's that picture of uh, like uh, Danny Lee, Jerry Petit, Bruce Lee, you. Oh, no, no, no. That was that was sometime during class. Oh, okay. I don't know how long we were into classes when we were doing that. And what were his classes like? So, so what was the typical class, if there even were was such a thing that Bruce Lee would run? So, how would he start the class? What would he have you guys doing? You know, what was it like? We started the class. If it was an hour class, you do half hour of um, exercises, mm -hmm. calisthenics, and um, just okay. I have a philosophy in life that anything that's worth doing is worth overdoing. Except exercise. <laughs> it was a half hour of exercises. I hated it. Then after that, we never knew what was going to happen. We might work touching hands. Uh, we might uh, work on kicks. We might work punches. It was never the same. There was there was no strict curriculum. Mm -hmm. And so, what uh, what does that make you feel? So nowadays, obviously, a lot of people try to pigeonhole what they believe Jeet Kune Do is and what Bruce Lee taught. And, and so based on your experience where it was kind of very different and you never knew what to expect, do you think it's actually possible to have a set curriculum for what Bruce Lee taught? Or is it more that it's about following the ideas of what he taught and applying that to a martial way? I mean, were, were there at all in any case a set of like he showed certain punches or certain movements or whatever, or was it just completely kind of off the top of his head, or I mean, I, I don't know, I guess what I'm trying to say is, nowadays we have the impression 
that you know Bruce Lee had some kind of set thing that he taught, and, and it seems that that wasn't the case. So what, what what would you say is really the main thing he was trying to teach? Well, he he had a curriculum. It's just that we never followed it. <laughs> he'd ask a question, or he'd he'd be interested in something, and he'd just go off in all different directions. Got it. Got it. So, as far as people trying to to pigeonhole this, or, or I, okay, I asked a question one time. I said, "What is Jeet Kune Do? Is Jeet Kune Do what Bruce Lee did, or is it what Bruce Lee taught?" And Occasionally, I get the answer that, well, they're the same thing. Well, Bruce told me in no uncertain terms that it is not the same thing. And you better not, under any circumstances, do what Bruce Lee does, or you're going to get hurt. (laughs) And let me tell you, when he said that, staring me in the face, he says, you're not Bruce Lee. You better not do it the way I do it, because you're going to get hurt. That was when you were... Right then... (laughs) That, that's what you said when you were dropping your hand or something, right? When you were punching? I, and... was punching, I was punching and dropping my hand. Yeah, I remember you telling and, me that story. And he, he told me, don't do that. Pull it back. And I said, okay. And he watched again, and I was doing it again. And he said, no, Steve, don't do that. You want to hold your hand this way. And I said, oh, okay. And he saw me doing it again, and he says, why do you keep doing that? And I said, Bruce, that's the way you punch. And that's when he stared me in the face. I mean, he came right up here, and he says... You're not Bruce Lee. You're going to get it. <laughs> and I'm telling you, if I did it one more time, I would have gotten hurt. Yeah, I bet. Because <laughs> he would have hurt me. That's but amazing. That, that just brings the point that everybody's trying to do what Bruce Lee did. And the whole point was not to do what he did. To learn how to do things, but not because Bruce was doing it. You're not Bruce, and you better not be Bruce. You better not try to be. Wow. So what would, what would you say, then, what, then what's the answer? Um, would you say it's do not what Bruce Lee was doing, but do do what you need to do for the reasons Bruce Lee was doing it? Like, I'm, I'm, how would you try and, like, clarify that? Because you don't, you, you don't want people sitting there saying, which I, I, say, I should say, I don't think you want people saying, I'm going to mimic Bruce Lee, but then you don't want people now going off on the exact opposite tangent and doing these jump-spinning back kicks from Taekwondo and saying, this is my Jeet Kune Do. There's, 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 a, there's a reason Bruce Lee did certain things, right? So, uh, This may sound kind of cold. That's okay. I really don't care what people do or what they think Jeet Kune Do is or what they do as Jeet Kune Do. It doesn't make any difference to me. Because, first of all, there's no way that I'm going to change their opinion Jeet Kune Do pretty much has turned into whatever anybody wants it to be. Now, I have my opinions on what I think it is, or what, what it is to me anyway. Right. And that's what Bruce told me. He told me that his system is based on the five roots. And that's the way he said it. He says, my system has five roots. And he just pulled me aside in class and he was talking about that. He says, other systems have one root. Maybe two roots. Some of the better have three or four roots, but my system has five roots. And I kept thinking, well, you know, there's Wing Chun and, you know, what other what other roots are a system? But I didn't realize that he was talking about the way you would say it in Hong Kong. Roots is what he said. He meant routes. <laughs> five ways. 
five ways, right? So all of a sudden that changed things. It's, it's you know, like Route 66, that's a way. <laughs> right. But everything was based on the five ways. And he was talking about the route, which I didn't know then. I didn't understand then. All I knew is those were the tools. The five ways were the tools. The route, distance, timing, rhythm. The five ways are just the way to implement the route. But I didn't know that then. And we talk about um, one of the things is when, when did I suddenly realize what was going on here and realize what we didn't know? Okay, Jeet Kune Do, in my opinion, is not a straight lead punch. It is not um, longest weapon to the closest target. It is not that. Um, you, can take, you can take all these rules and everything, and it's none of that. Those are things that are properties of Jeet Kune Do, but they're not Jeet Kune Do. Jeet Kune Do, to me is the ability to use the root, distance, timing, and rhythm by the five ways of attack. And, okay, let me, let me give you a, a, another example. People talk about timing or rhythm. If you, if you talk about something like timing, I would ask what it is, and people say, well, it's when you do something. That makes sense, right? It's when should I do this? When should I do that? You know, when, when is your opponent doing this? When is it doing that? But timing itself, excuse me, has nothing to do with Jeet Kune Do in that sense. Jeet Kune Do talks about the control of the root, controlling timing, controlling rhythm, controlling distance. You talk about distance as a measure. Well, you can measure it, but so what? You say, well, you're, you're, not, you're not in kicking range, you're too far away, you're in kicking range, you're in grabbing range, you're in punching range, all this stuff. But what about controlling that distance? All of a sudden, it becomes a tool, and people don't think of it that way. I don't blame anybody. I mean, you're not taught to think of it that way. I didn't understand any of that until I was at Jerry Potit's house, and he gave me a copy of Bruce's handwritten notes, most of which went into the Tao Jeet Kune Do. But these were the old handwritten notes in no specific order. And I started looking at that, and I thought, oh, my God, this, is, this all of a sudden explains how things work. And I told Jerry, I said, they, they can't publish this. And he said, they're going to. And I said, but this explains it. This, <laughs> they can't do this. And he says, yeah, they're going to do it. So I was telling people, I was up in Eugene at, at the time when that came out. I said, when this comes out, it's going to change martial arts forever. And the book came out. People were reading it. And I got two responses. The response was we don't understand any of it and i was surprised the other response was oh we all know we know all of that right we can help the people <laughs> who didn't understand it <laughs> the people right. that already knew it all stay away from them but years later we kept we kept talking about this p jacobs and i oh maybe let's see 10 years after that we were talking about the fact that why did this make so much sense to us? And other people couldn't figure it out. It didn't make any sense to them at all. And we realized it's because when we read that, we saw Bruce. We were there when these things were happening. He was doing it. Right. That's like the Rosetta Stone. Right, absolutely. Without that, it was just a bunch of words. People were looking for technique. 
you you were able to put it into context because you had a vision in your head as to it being done properly. Well, we all of a sudden it was shown. I mean, we read this and we see Bruce doing it. We see it in action. We see it happening. It didn't mean we could do it, right? But at least we knew where where to go, what direction to take. So then, um, is it safe to say that a lot of the the things that were in his notes, the, the details about what he was studying and what his kind of game plan for Jeet Kune Do was, he did not then verbalize those things in the regular class? Is it safe to say that? No, no, he didn't. He didn't. But those those notes, you have to realize that I might write something down, like um, look at this book on this page, note the technique here. And I do that because it's one of the most horrible things I've ever seen. (laughs) And if he wrote something down, you know, and it might be because he thought it was funny or he thought it was no good or he wanted to consider it and then threw it out later. But people take all this as the law. Sure. You have to understand why did he write this down? And did he still feel that way later? Wrote something down to think about it. He, some of the notes that I don't think ever came out were the most telling of Bruce. You read all these, these philosophical statements that he, he did. But on one, he says um, something like, um, consider your opponent's roundhouse kick. How do you handle the kick on intent, on initiation, when it's one-third of the way through, when it's halfway through, when it's three-quarters of the way through, when it's almost in contact. He's not only breaking down what do you do against the kick, he's breaking it down in timeline as the whole kick progresses, and he could handle that. I don't know anybody that can do that anymore. Wow. Right. So when you read something like that, how, how he was actually breaking down how you handle different attacks at all stages of the attack. I mean, I'm lucky to block a punch to get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, talked a little bit about timing before. Um, as we know, I'm, I, I have some questions about rhythm. I think rhythm, broken rhythm, is um, of vital importance to uh, making Jeet Kune Do, as I understand it, work. Um, can we speak a little bit about rhythm, breaking rhythm, and the idea of um, the difference between broken rhythm and different rhythms? You'll see oftentimes on like on the forms, people say like it's one, two, three, one, two, three, you know, one, two, three. This idea of different rhythms is, you know, would you mind speaking about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, they usually give the example like um, three punches, uh, right, left in a hook or something like that. You do right, left, and then pause, hook, or you do right, left, pause, hook, or, and you, you keep breaking it up. And like you say, those are just different rhythms. And I have asked why you do it. And the answer I usually get is either a blank stare or something like it confuses your opponent. Yeah, well, it confuses you too if you have no reason for doing it. Why did you pick a one two, three. Why didn't you pick a one, two, three? There's no reason. It's just random. People get out there using broken rhythm. They'll move around. They'll be out there sparring and they'll be real jerky and you know, you can't figure out what they're going to do, where they're going to go and everything. And they've done a wonderful job of breaking their own rhythm. But it's got nothing to do with their opponent. 
I think people do that. And you just wait until they get tired of doing that and punch them. <laughs> they're, they're bouncing around. I'm, I'm t- well, that's another story. But <laughs> the idea is not to break your rhythm. That's got nothing to do with anything. The idea is to break your opponent's rhythm, which means you have to build up their rhythm and start controlling it. Bruce told me the person that controls the rhythm wins the fight. You know, you always have these absolutes. Um, but the idea is you're controlling the rhythm, you're, you're controlling the person's rhythm, and then you suddenly break that, and it, they don't know what to do. All of a sudden, they're in between a move, and something's changed. You don't do it randomly. You have to do it so you have that control. You do it with intent, and there's a reason for doing it, not just randomly jumping around. So the idea is, so would you? It's a misnomer when people say that I break rhythm by breaking my own rhythm. That although that may be a way of breaking your opponent's well, rhythm, okay. the goal the goal should be to break your opponent's rhythm as as opposed to your own right. rhythm. Breaking your own rhythm is a way to break their rhythm, but you don't do it randomly. That's the key there. It seems to be this idea of random versus uh, planned manipulation. Okay. I was sparring with Jerry in in Chinatown. Jerry Petit. Right, Jerry Petit. We're, a bunch of us were sparring, so we're in Paris. And Bruce is yelling at us, yelling and screaming at us. You're just moving around. Move with a purpose. Why are you just moving around? What's the matter with you? Move with a purpose. And he's ang- he's getting angry. Okay, I was a black belt in Kenpo. I knew that when I'm sparring with someone, the idea is for me to hit them and for me not to get hit. Simple. That's the purpose. Well, why is Bruce yelling and screaming at us that we're doing it wrong? We're not moving with a purpose. He wouldn't tell us what he meant. So if he's angry at us for doing that, why doesn't he try to correct it? Okay, so, okay, 10, 15 years goes by. um, Pete and I are talking, and we came up with an idea as to why he wasn't correcting and, and why he was angry. Maybe he thought we knew. And we weren't doing it. But his move with the purpose wasn't move so you hit them and they don't hit you. It wasn't that at all. It's so you have complete, absolute control of your opponent. You determine what they're going to do. You determine when they're going to do it. Complete control. And at this point in my life and experience, it takes, let's see, how long does it take to gain complete control if I square up with someone, about half a second. And all of a sudden, I'm in control of everything that happens. People aren't going to believe that. Well, okay, you've seen I, I'm, I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> I've been punched, I know. But people, the people hear this. The problem is people hear this, and in their heads, they're picturing the... Um, the whack jobs on Facebook videos where these guys, these uh, masters, make their students fall over without hitting them and things to that effect. And this is not what Steve's talking about. Steve's not talking about, uh, you know, touchless chi energy strikes. He's, he's talking about um, 
Well, how I experienced it, and Steve, I'm sorry if I'm talking a little bit too much here, but how how I experienced it with Steve, how I felt was I always felt off balance. Steve and I would move around, spar a little bit, and I kind of always felt off balance. The second I'd get comfortable, Steve would adjust in a way that would make me feel off balance. Now, the problem is that when you're off balance, you don't have the same kind of movement. So that when once I was off balance and lost that, that, that slight little edge, Steve would, was able to enter on me. And I, I always describe the chi-sowing with Steve or sparring with Steve in this way. Picture when you walk up to a door, a door that you're not familiar with, in, say, an office building or something. And you see the door handle and you just reach out to grab the door handle to open it out. And just as you're about to grab it, the door, someone swings the door away from you, and you fall forward. That's what it felt like until you got used to that. And then you would fall forward, and the door would open into your face. (laughs) And that is, in my opinion, the most accurate representation of what it felt like when I sparred with Steve. And it was this idea of always feeling off balance, always feeling like, I know I'm supposed to be moving and hitting here, but I know if I do, I'm going to get hit, you know? And that's why I always felt like this idea of when people talk about timing and distance and rhythm, that um, and, and myself included, I don't have that edge that you always have. That, that ability to take control the way you take control and just make you feel off-center. But, I, but I've told you how I do it. <laughs> I haven't tried to keep it a secret. Absolutely not. No, I. No, you, you've been very forward with me. In, in fact, that you've. Uh, oh, I, I didn't say I sucked at it. <laughs> I, just, I just don't feel like I'm on a level you're on. But. Um, I'll bet, but I'll bet you can do it to other people. Um, I, I think I can make people feel uncomfortable once in a while. You're good at making people feel uncomfortable, Sean. I'll tell you that. <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about this hitting at a distance. You know, first of all, I don't believe in it either. Although, I don't cancel anything out. I do think that the people on YouTube and all these other guys are a bunch of lunatics. But what Bruce did is from Chi Sal, he took Chi Sal out at a distance. And, you know, you can move people doing chi sao. You can feel how they're going to move. You can make them move certain ways by giving certain pressures. He took it to where you could do that at a distance. And that's where progressive indirect attack comes in. So we're moving people at a distance, not hitting them, but moving them to the point where we can hit them. Right. The idea of, of implied pressure. That, that, that's how I always describe it. Right. You can the, feel it at a distance, too. Right. You can feel... So, so, Alex, when you spar with Steve, you feel like pressure coming at you. And it's... it's, it's I always, It's not pressure like, oh, cheap power pressure. It's pressure as an impending doom. And <laughs> it's... Because you're there, you're moving around, and you're kind of feeling... You get this urge, like, I better move to my right, because shit's going to be coming hard. To, to my left. I can, like, I can just, because you kind of, 
one of the things you learn from Steve is how to watch people loading up their weight and things to that effect and in, in relation to how they're moving. So one of, that was one of the first lessons I remember learning from Steve. And so what I would spar with Steve, you kind of like look to see where the weight was going and where the balance was in the footwork and to see where the attacks were going to be coming from and how could I use that information. And you'd feel like, okay, I have to move right. And you'd be moving right into an attack. <laughs> and it would be so fucking frustrating, you know? <laughs> and that's what I mean about this, this idea of um, this pressure that you would feel from Steve, this manipulation that he would be able to just take control. And again, it's nothing esoteric, right, Steve? I mean, this is... It's just, nothing magic. It's nothing magic. Right. It's nothing magic. That's exactly right. But, but um, if, if you look through all Bruce's notes... Dao Ji Kondo and you know and all the stuff John Little put out I mean fantastic books just an enormous amount of information there are some things that are not in there some things that Bruce didn't write down and didn't let anybody know about and and I'm not going to either (laughs) (laughs) but but what happens once you get to this level once you know how this works what you're doing is forcing people to do what you want, but you're forcing them to do the right thing. And that's when you get them. Right. And that's a scary thing to think about because if someone makes you do exactly the right thing and you are doing the right thing in this situation, that's when you get hit. That's right. the level this was at. So you described that to me as... Okay, so one of the things, the frustrations you would feel in sparring Steve would be, like I said, how the fuck did I not see that coming? And Steve would say to me, no, 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 you saw it coming. In fact, you jumped right into it. <laughs> and it would it would be, Steve has an ability in, in the way he moves and the way he teaches, and I love it. And, and yes, I, I, I figured out some of this stuff from, from Steve's lessons. He gets you to do what you want to do. And that's about as far as I'm willing to even say on it. He'll, he gets you to do what you want to do. And it's, except he knows you're going to do it before you know you're going to do it. <laughs> and, and, and that there, when you understand the root of things and the five ways of attack and this understanding of being able to manipulate a person to do what they want to do is when the real pressure and control comes out. And that to me has always been a nugget. It's what? worse than that. It's worse than that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what happens is you don't allow them to do what they want to do. You make them do, do what they want to do. So not only that, you know exactly when it's going to happen. Right. I mean, talk about gaining an advantage. You not only know what they're going to do, but you know when they're going to do it because you've caused it to happen. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what happens when you start controlling the distance, the timing, and the rhythm, rather than just measuring it. Right. You get out there, and, and I, I've done this, and it, it kind of shakes people up sometimes when you do this. You get up there with someone who's sparring, and you say, okay, what I want you to do is get to a distance you're comfortable. We'll move around a distance you're comfortable. Don't get any closer than that. And they go, okay, we do that. And I say, okay, let's stop and measure where we are. Right. You did this to me. 
Yeah, okay. So we, we take a minute. You did this to me. I remember this happening. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's do this again. So we're moving around. You know, I'll do something else for post. So let's move around. And I said, oh, okay, now let's stop. Now you said you wouldn't want to get any closer. Let's measure again. And I gained about, what, six inches? Or, six inches, yeah, absolutely. All of a sudden you're, you're closer than you wanted to be? I'll never forget. That was the most simplest trick in the world. <laughs> That you showed me, and I was like, holy shit, how did I not see him do that? Yeah. And all of a sudden, people realize that you're controlling. This is, again, you're controlling the distance. Right. You're not just measuring it. You're, you're making them stand the distance you want them to be, and they don't know it. Right. You make them adjust the distance the way you want them to be. Yeah. Yeah, that was fucking brilliant. This is great. I'm taking this all in. This is really fascinating. This was, this was really – this was, you know – this was um, JKD 101 for me when I was with Steve Golden. It was when I first started training with Steve Golden. It was just like, like holy shit. Like, I remember this first week of just like all these ideas being pounded into my head. And when I say pounded, I mean literally. That there was, a, there was a, 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 one of my best friends in the world, a man named Andrew Tucker. Um, almost all the time I had with Steve many years ago was shared with Andrew. It was Andrew, Andrew, myself, and Steve in my backyard. And um, I'll never forget one time when Andrew said to me, he, uh, Andrew was from Louisiana and he had this awesome accent. He said to me, he goes, Sean, I got an idea. And I'm like, what, Andrew? He goes, you watch him from the waist up, I'll watch him from the waist down. Later on, we'll compare notes. <laughs> And, and you know what? It sounds crazy, but it actually helped us. Because we would do stuff, and I would say to Andrew later, I, I, what did he do right before he hit me? And he's like, well, he did this with his feet. And holy shit, I never saw him do that before. And we started putting things together, you know. And then we would ask Steve, and we would confirm or or, 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 say, or or tweak what we uh, our understanding was. But there's so much going on in what you're doing as far as... Um, pressure and the, and the release of pressure to get people to manipulate people it's 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 a brilliant system you teach steve it's fun <laughs> so some some people had asked us um if you would talk just for even for a couple of minutes on the difference between what it would like to train in the chinatown school and you did some time in bruce lee's backyard for a little while it was there a difference in the way he taught in the two areas or or was it basically the same? Okay. First of all, I've read and heard things about how I stopped coming to the backyard and I wasn't coming as often and I quit and I wasn't showing up in the backyard. Okay, the truth is I never saw his backyard. <laughs> okay. Never, never, ever, Oops. ever. We used to go to his house at night and right. work out <laughs> inside. It's backyard sessions happened after I left, so I have no idea what he used to do there. <laughs> in the house, it was kind of like class. We'd start off doing one thing, and all of a sudden we'd be doing something else, and it was whatever we happened to question or talk about. We we came there, actually invited to his house to learn Shi Sao. Oh. He was going to teach us Shi Sao. And we did that a couple of times. <laughs> I remember <laughs> We ended up in this other room where he had this three or four hundred pound heavy bag and another heavy bag swinging. And it was about, I don't know, it must have been about 15, 20 feet away from one corner. 
he would get in one corner of the room and move, taking a, a step, slide, jump, and just smash a heavy bag. None of us could reach it. Jerry could. Jerry could go across the room and his foot could kind of touch the bag. He's right. the only one that could do that. None of us could get close. Bruce would do the same distance and just smash it into the wall. <laughs> Couldn't figure out how anybody could get that speed and that distance. Wow. That's but amazing. As, as for what we did, it was just all over the place. Bruce would be doing strength type demonstrations or just play around. Did you uh, did you feel that Bruce Lee was more maybe experimenting using his students to work on his own stuff and perhaps more concerned with that than necessarily teaching them to be protégés? Or what, what's your opinion on that? Well, I, I don't know how far he was thinking of taking it, but what he was trying to do is see if he could shortcut some of the things that he had done. <clears throat> as far as Chi Sao, you're supposed to be able to get the sensitivity to handle any situation you run into once you touch. And he said, yeah, but on the street you run into this, you run into a, an inward, an outward, an upward, a downward pressure, and that's probably all you run into, you know, in a real fighting situation. So he tried to work us practicing those, and and it, it, it got okay. You know, the first we practice on someone hitting your hand this way, and then hitting your hand this way, you're raising up. Mm-hmm. And then what we do is vary it, so you didn't know what was going to happen. You just try to react to all of those. And even when I left there, it was all mental. You're trying to, you're supposed to react, but you're trying to figure out which is which is the next thing the guy's going to do. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he blocked me this way, and I'm going to go around. And it took years and years and years, but it actually took cheese out until I was able to actually do it without thinking. Nice. So I don't know how successful that was, but what he was trying to do is shortcut things. Now, if people stuck with that and kept doing what he said then maybe they got better and better at that. But I didn't. I wasn't. I didn't feel I was getting anywhere. So I was lucky enough to find people that were doing Wing Chun. And that really and who, made a difference. And, and who was, uh, who, who were you training Wing Chun with? There was um, uh, a student at the University of Oregon, uh, Dennis Liu, and he had studied with Wang Xing Lung. And I was fortunate to get an introduction and I met uh, David Lung at the time, talked to him, and invited them out to lunch so I could talk to them about, about training. And we did, we did that, kind of hit it off okay. And then uh, Dennis started, uh, he let me get in the group teaching. There were three of us, um, me, David Lung, and uh, Dave Chan. So we were, we were all working. We worked for... Well, let's see, probably a year or so, they all went back to Hong Kong for the summer. And they get a letter saying, stop doing the forum, it's wrong. They switched <laughs> instructors. <laughs> come back, all of a sudden, everything changes, positions change, form changes. Uh, we work on that for another year. They go back to Hong Kong, I get another letter. Steve, stop. <laughs> they switch instructors again. <laughs> So, so consequently, I learned a lot of different ways of doing things. Uh-huh. But I'd say we worked together maybe four years before uh, he graduated and went back to Hong Kong to stay. In that time, doing Chi Sao, I learned maybe three or four different attacks, and that was all. Most of it is just feeling, sensitivity, moving. 
and really, really just a lot of basics. So we weren't worried about all the different ways you can hit or do anything. Um, David is still teaching in Eugene, and um, we used to get together all the time. We still get together once in a while. I live um, about two hours away. So he'll come up and do um, uh, seminars for this other friend of mine. We get together when when he does that. So we've been friends since uh, 73, 74, somewhere around that. That's incredible. Wow. So... So would you say most of your Wing Chun you learned with your friend David Leong as a, yeah. as, a as a not a student as a as a well, we as a training partner yeah yeah uh, David's a frightening person <laughs> nice nice as you can imagine but when you spar you're gonna get hurt All right. <laughs> I mean, if, when I sparred with him, I ended up probably bleeding. And, I, you know, I remember that. I remember stopping sparring because we had to look for the contact that I poked out of his eye. We hard. <laughs> but, uh, you know, just, just friends. It was, it was good. As, as far as learning Wing Chun, the most I learned is from them. However, I'd learn a little bit from other people that would suddenly make a big change. And some of the people, I don't even know their names. You, you start playing with them and you feel something different. You say, okay, now how is that going to fit in everything? Um, we did a lot of forward energy. Everything was forward energy, which was great. I mean, it just, just wipes out almost everybody. But then I met someone who did only dissolving. Hmm. I could always get the first shot in, in on the instructor. Always the first shot, but I couldn't do anything after that. He would be all over me and I couldn't stop anything. And it was all dissolving. So I started playing around with that. And all of a sudden, things started getting better. But what happened is I could dissolve anything that's coming in. But what I couldn't do is fill emptiness. So the forward energy was a little missing. And it took, it took me about 15 years, maybe 20 years, to be able to put those together to where they were both working, the dissolving and the forward energy at the same time. Wow. That's interesting. Um, you had, you've said many times in different uh, Facebook groups and, and various forms over the years, when people would ask you, oh, did you learn this from Ed Parker or did you learn this from Bruce Lee? You, you, you're always careful to say, I learned this because of Bruce Lee. Yeah, right. Can you talk about, like, what, what do you mean by that? And, yeah, Bruce didn't teach it. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't teach it. Um, I learned it because I read the notes and I started understanding what he was doing and what he should have been talking about, but he wasn't. And maybe we weren't ready for it anyway. Right. So because of studying with him and because of reading the notes and because of trying to gain that understanding, that's why I do what I do. It wasn't because Bruce taught us that. He didn't. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, that does make sense. It make it, it makes sense to me, but I, I do get that question every once in a while. What does Steve mean when he says he learned this because of Bruce Lee? I, I usually answer it with, well, ex Steve, or I say that you know he he, he learned a skill set. He learned he learned an ability to learn. 
what to look out for. You know, think about uh, this. When we when we studied with Bruce, I was I was there. I don't know how long I was at the school. I hear everything depending on who you want to talk to and how well they like me. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I was there for two days, or I, I was there for two years. Actually, at best I can tell you is maybe about nine months. In that time, I wasn't always in class. You know, I, I hear all this stuff about all oh, there's these attendance records, and Steve wasn't in class, and Steve missed these classes, missed that. Yeah, we were either out there working out on our own or we were playing with Bruce Lee. So, you know, do I want to go to class or do I want to get a chance to play with Bruce? So, right. Yeah, I didn't do that. But still, in nine months, how much you can, how, how much can you learn? And it wasn't like every day. Right. Because Bruce was busy most of the time. So if I learned everything Bruce was teaching me in that nine months, that would be just a, a mere nothing of what I know now. Right. But it's because I knew Bruce and because I was able to look at the notes and because I was able to make sense out of it that I learned all this. So it was because of him. Not that he taught it. He didn't. Right. Now, maybe he taught other people. I don't know. But we've, we've looked around for people. We've looked around for people that work on controlling the distance timing rhythm. We've, we've looked and we've looked and we can't find people doing it. And I don't know why. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but we, we just happen to head in that direction and we're able to do this. Occasionally, we will see someone in a different system, different method, that is doing some of this stuff. And it is soon, well, this is funny. My students went to a seminar, a Filipino guy was doing a seminar. And, you know, he's going through all this stuff. And all of a sudden, my students were kind of shocked because they saw he was doing something that, that we do. And as soon as they mentioned it, they said, wow, you know, you're using, you're using this to make this work. He shut down. Right. As soon as he realized they knew what was going on, he just shut down and started going just absolute basic. Wouldn't talk about it anymore. Because he knew there was people there that could learn. Yeah. That could see. But but I've seen other people use the broken rhythm. And uh, again, they, they might show it to me or they might do it, not expecting people to see what's going on. Right. Right. I want to ask you. I want to ask you about. Um, there's a lot of debate as to uh, how does Wing Chun fit in the framework of Jeet Kune Do. You know, some people feel. I mean, you know all the arguments. Some people feel you can't do Jeet Kune Do without Wing Chun. Some people feel Wing Chun is meaningless in the in the grand scheme of things when it comes to Jeet Kune Do. What's your opinion on where Wing Chun fits in with, um, I say, the framework of Jeet Kune Do? I don't even know how you can make a judgment on that because they they don't even agree on what Jeet Kune Do is. <laughs> so, you know, whether something fits in or not, what is Jeet Kune Do? Some people say Jeet Kune Do is just this set. Other people say Jeet Kune Do is this with Wing Chun. So if they're not agreeing on what it is... What difference does it make what I think? Right. I mean, okay, one of the things that I mentioned, I mentioned this almost every seminar, the way you think about something affects the way you do it. If you think about Jeet Kune Do as being inclusive to Wing Chun or part of Wing Chun, 
then that's the way you'll do it. If you think it doesn't make any difference between them, then that's the way you'll do it. So if you can't define Jeet Kune Do, then which one's right? I just let people do whatever they want on that. You want to include Wing Chun? I think it's beneficial. If you don't think it's beneficial, don't do it. Right. Okay. A um, long time ago, you told me a story about a seminar you taught on the sticks. Mm-hmm. And you taught, uh, I think it was disarms, the first part of the seminar. And then you changed up on them after lunch or something. Can you tell that story? I actually thought about posting part of that video because I've got a video of that seminar. I entitled it Stick Disarms and Takedowns, Why They Don't Work and How to Make Them Work. And so I went through the whole whole first part of the seminar doing these uh, disarms, you know, Someone attack, you do this disarm or takedown and everything. And everybody's working on that. And these are pretty experienced people. And I said, you know, how are you guys doing? You like this? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I had my assistant who I was demonstrating with all the time. I said, okay, let's let's do this. And I said, I want to show you how good this this disarm is that we've been working on. I mean, it's it, it'll just, you know, takes a stick, drops the guy, no big deal. So I had my assistant uh, swing at me. I went boom, started to do it. My assistant just grabbed me around the neck, turned me around, smacked me, threw me on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and I expected people in the audience to go, oh. But no, most of these people knew me and they started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> it was surprising. And I had to talk to my assistant beforehand. I said, I want you to do this hard. I want you to take me down hard just to show that, you know, this takes too long to do. So then afterwards, I said, okay, now here's how you should be doing it. So I went through the rest just doing it, and they're almost instantaneous takedowns and disarms. And no one was able to counter any of those. Right. So that's the way that that went. Yeah, so that story always resonated with me because it it taught me to – not fall in love with the agenda of any seminar that I was at. That it, it really taught me, like, I remember when you told me that story, I remember coming home and saying to myself, like, you know, I have to keep my eyes open on what I'm learning at places. Just because it's working at, at this seminar with some big name teaching whatever it is, I have to, like, how can I break this down, make it more efficient, make it quicker? Because... It, you know, I, it, it was. It sounds kind of maybe sounds a little silly, but it, it took that story to open my mind to say like not everything I'm learning at a famous person's seminar is something I want to invest my time in outside of that seminar. I take it all this information and then try to figure out what to do with it. And I go to seminars of all different systems. I mean, um, jujitsu, Aikido, jujitsu, sticks, everything. And I was working with one of my top students at one of these seminars. And all of a sudden, I turned around and sat down. And I think this was like a JKD seminar. And he says, aren't you going to practice this? And I said, I refuse to practice things that are going to make me worse. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were doing things that I thought, this is, this is really bad. Right. Usually, I, I try to do everything they're doing and try to learn from it. You know, why are they doing this? How are they doing this? Um, yeah. on our, I think it was Aikido Jiu Jitsu. 
I was working with one of my students, and there was a technique against a knife. You've got a knife, they've got a knife. And I don't remember what it was. You know, a guy comes in, you do this and round and do a drop and whatever. The instructor, who kind of knew me, came up to me and he says, Steve, what would you do? And the guy came in and I just I just sidestepped him, just dropped the knife you know, straight across all the way. And he just shook his head and he says, you take it right from the top, don't you? <laughs> so he said, when, when the guys get really advanced, that's the stuff they start doing. But uh, none of the... None of the Intricate stuff. It just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it's funny how that is. Yeah, you know, train the gross motor movements, the fine motor movements will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Steve, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you doing this. This was uh, this was a great podcast. I, I you're going to make a lot of people happy with this. I don't know. I probably got some enemies too. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Sean, Sean makes enemies every week on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's nothing new. The amount of hate mail we get at the dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page is tremendous, but it's all, it usually always goes to Sean. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, if, I, if I get any hate mail or everything, just throw it away. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no worries about that. But um, I, I really I wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast, and uh, I hope you had a good time. We had a great time. Yeah, it was really great. I really appreciate okay. all those stories. It was a lot of fun, and I'm, we're hoping maybe in the future you'll come on again if this wasn't such a horrible experience for you. And uh, maybe we can even talk you back, talk you into coming back to New York one day. That's right. And maybe if I'm lucky, maybe I can have you sign my yellow Game of Death tracksuit next time you come to New York. <laughs> Should I sign it, Bruce Lee? <laughs> yeah. Do you, but, uh, real quick, do you, do you ever get weird requests to sign like weird Bruce Lee memorabilia stuff or anything like that? I mean, it must, well, it must also be weird because you're one of like, like Bruce Lee is one of these iconic guys like Elvis, like James Dean. And, and you obviously have some kind of connection to him. I mean, What's it like when you have these like really kind of these like Bruce Lee fans who want to ask you weird questions to show you weird stuff? I mean, like, um, do you find it flattering? Do you find it strange? I mean, like, you know, I mean, what what what's that like? I can't even imagine. I I appreciate the fact that they're interested, you know, and, and try to help them. I I don't I don't belittle people for being interested in that. Sure, 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 sure. So you will sign my Game of Death tracksuit, is what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. Alex, with that with that said, two quick stories. <laughs> One, at the first ever seminar I hosted with first with Steve, at the end of the at the end of the seminar, he's he's asked, he's taking questions from people. And one guy got up, and as serious can be, he said, you know, in Way of the Dragon, uh, Bruce Lee did this movement before that movement, and he did this, and and did, 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 did Bruce Lee really mean to do a pox out like that? Because it kind of like he was pulling, and, and I remember Steve turning around looking at me and saying, what the fuck is he talking about? <laughs> And, and for people to re- just give it a little quick insight into the personality of Steve Golden, again, that same seminar, um, for weeks before the seminar, Steve, I was getting um, emails from this kid who wanted to come to the seminar, and he was 15, 16 years old. And his mom was really nervous about him coming, and, you know, was he going to get hurt? And I explained to her that my wife would be there and that she would watch over him and make sure that he was fine and, you know, and... And so we pull up outside the seminar, 
And Alex, this kid comes walking up, and he's got a box. And it's got every piece of martial arts equipment he's ever owned in his life, right? All the, you know, safety headgear and the gloves and the shin pads and the foot pads and size and boxing gloves. I mean, he's got, like, this huge fucking, like, moving box. And he walks over, and I'm standing there with Steve, and... I said, so I, I really realized it's him because he's the only, like, 15-year-old there, and he's there with his mom. So I said, oh, hi, I'm Sean Madigan. I've been exchanging emails with you, and this is my wife, Lori. And Steve walks up to the kid and says, that box looks heavy. Do you need help? And the kid goes, oh, yeah, here. And he hands Steve the box, right? <laughs> so Steve goes, all right, I'll carry these up. And the seminar was on, like, the fourth, the, like, the fourth floor of a school. Oh, man. And so Steve carries up, and the kid turns around to me and says, when do I get to meet Steve Golden? I says, it's the guy you just handed the box to. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I had, I had so much so much fun that weekend. It was it was it was such a uh, it was such a pleasure getting to know you, Steve. It was uh, you had a huge impact on my life. Still do, but back then you had a huge impact on my life. And I learned, I always tell people people all the time when people say, what'd you learn from Steve Golden? And I tell them, I learned so much about life from Steve Golden. I learned a lot of things from Steve Golden. And some of them had to do with martial arts, (laughs) but (laughs) mostly not, you know, and and the smart people get what I mean, you know, Um, the the life outside of martial arts, but uh, was so much more important to me. There is something, isn't there? Yeah, <laughs> for some of us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this was really great. Again, really appreciate it. A really great time. Uh, uh, let me before we get out of here. Let me just say say a couple words uh, uh, for those of you uh, out in the internet. Please like us on Facebook. Like the Dudes of Kung Fu Facebook page as always. When these podcasts come out, like them, share them, let people know about it. Write reviews for us on iTunes, on Android. Let people know how awesome the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast is. And we surpassed another milestone today. We had our twenty-five thousand downloads. As right as of today, we hit twenty-five thousand downloads, and uh, we couldn't be happier. It's uh, you know we really want to thank you, folks, for this. Um, You've been amazing, and we still can't get anybody in South Dakota to download the fucking thing. But (laughs) (laughs) I check every day. I'm like, come on, South Dakota. Just give me one person to download the fucking podcast. None. (laughs) It's amazing. It's like I really want to throw you out of the union. I'm done. (laughs) Awesome. That was really great. And, uh, well, we're back on next week again for another episode. Yes, sir. All right. Looking forward to it. Thank you again, Steve. Thanks again. Bye, guys. All right, guys. Bye-bye.